welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley. I'm joining you from my uh, new apartment. I know. This is an, uh, a new background for you. Where where are we sitting here? So we're about... Uh, it looks like you're on the floor, so I don't think you have all the furniture yet. There is basically no furniture put up yet, so I'm in a very, very makeshift studio. Uh, hardly can call it yeah. that. But uh, yeah, we've been uh, slowly walking our... Moving during a pandemic, not what I expected. Um, yeah. But we only moved like... It's in the same block, so we were able to walk everything over and sort of minimize contact with people. So that was both good and bad because this literally required us to like hold everything that we own and walk and like carry it to the new place, yeah. which I feel like is a good exercise. Um, so I'm thinking about. Did selling you end that. up just like trashing half of it on the side of the road? No, I'm. <laughs> also, it didn't, especially not the books. I should have gotten rid of more books, but I can't. Mm, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> and how are you? Uh, I'm good. Not not too many updates. Not too many still, updates. Still in Arlington. <laughs> well, uh, what are we? Uh, I figure we could talk about what we were drinking this week in the context of uh, a sort of uh, appetizer signs of the time story, if you will. <laughs> yes. No. This is a great one. So Pope Francis was caught on video calling Scotch whiskey the real holy water. <laughs> Legend. <laughs> So we are drinking. We are drinking the whiskey. real holy water this week. I've got a, I've got a, yeah, glass of a uh, Johnny Black. Um, yeah. So. so this was this is for a, a BBC documentary that's going to be coming out uh, called Preschool, Priest School, not Preschool. Um, and Pope Francis met with a couple of of Scottish uh, students, priest students, um, and they gave him a bottle and. Uh, he didn't know he was mic'd up, I guess, and called it the real holy water. But when you say priest students, do you just mean seminarians? And- yeah, I guess that would be <laughs> an easier way to say that. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, but the I, New York uh, Post article where I read this apparently <laughs> prefers the term. Referred to them as priest students. Yeah. Well, here's to um, uh, Pope Francis documentary coming out, and uh, or a documentary with Pope Francis, and the real holy water. Yes. Uh, May it flow. All right. Cheers. cheers. All right. And who are we talking to this week, Zach? This week we have on the show Jennifer Overton, who is the Regional Director for West Africa for Catholic Relief Services. Yeah, and Jennifer has worked with CRS for many years, um, and a lot of their work in West Africa has to do with healthcare. Um, And because of their experience with Ebola, uh, West Africa has really mobilized its health resources. Um, So there are are a few thousand cases in the region, but the coronavirus hasn't hit uh, West Africa as hard as uh, it has in Europe and parts of Asia and North America at this point. But they're ready for when it inevitably spreads more in the region. Yeah. So we talked to Jennifer about the experience of West Africa in sort of recovering from Ebola and preparing for coronavirus, not just on a practical level in terms of what public health policies are being enacted, but also like what that what effect that has on sort of the soul of a people in a country. And also, what is the role of the church in West Africa and how is it different than the United States? Yes. So stick around for our interview with Jennifer. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? I'm thrilled for this. Uh, The first story (laughs) is that a new PC game is in development titled Pope Simulator. Uh, So a version of The Sims, but instead of a sad family... 
um, you get to play as Pope Francis. Yes. So I, I watched the trailer for this. It's still in development. They don't have a release date yet, but they had a pretty substantial trailer. Um, and you start at the conclave and it's, it's a first person game. So like you're looking out through the eyes of the Pope and it begins at the conclave and you choose your coat of arms and then you're presented with different files that maybe the Pope would have to deal with. So trouble in the Middle East, and you get to decide whether to send your nuncio or to go visit or just to ignore it. Um, And (laughs) the Pope's energy or faith level increases as he prays and decreases as he gives out bless units uh, to to adoring crowds. So it, it looks very entertaining. Yes, and you're supposed to build up specific skills. Uh, I'm hoping you can pick your own Pope name. Um, it's not a question I really had considered before, but with the advent of this game yeah. coming on, I will be sorting through the pluses and minuses of Celestin and John and Boniface and all these different names and and to what it would really mean <laughs> for my uh, you know consolidating power in this virtual world. Mm, yeah. Uh, a pope from Ohio. That would be that would be interesting. Yeah, Ur- uh, Urban from Ohio, like Urban Meyer, our beloved football coach of, of past. <laughs> no, I I actually like the idea of this game. I don't think I'll actually play it because I'm not a big video game player. But from what I know of video games, they can be quite violent, and so it's nice to see a game that's emphasizing the role of diplomacy in international relations for once. Well, I guess the question is whether you're rewarded for diplomacy, right? You could still play this game and sort of choose the chaos route and <laughs> really bring shame upon the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. I, You know, I, I'm torn on whether this, this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, whenever the Pope is in sort of a public culture, pop culture persona it's always a risk i think we had a real hit with Mm. the two popes last year um and so maybe we'll pick up on this i know for one that i'm looking forward to playing this video game and telling my wife that it's (laughs) for work so amanda be prepared for that are you gonna play this one uh i'll i'll wait till you test it out for me (laughs) all right that sounds good all right what's our next story ashley Okay, you know who's not bringing shame on the Catholic Church? Uh, A Catholic school uniform company in Portland, Oregon, which is using its factory to make face masks for medical professionals. Yes, so Dennis Uniform, which is a company based in Portland, as you said, uh, they have uniform supplies for 2,500 private Catholic schools across the country. And so they're looking for a way to use those supplies to help out with the coronavirus pandemic. Yes, and their chairman, Tom Shipley, looked around the factory, saw plenty of that plaid fabric you know and love from Catholic school girl (laughs) pants and skirts uh, and sewing machines and decided to use those to create, at this point, 15,000 masks, which are being donated to healthcare workers, mostly in the Portland area. Yeah, and there was some precedent for this. It's not the first time that the company had responded to a national emergency. During World War II, they made Red Cross uniforms and supplied towels and linens to military personnel shipping out of Portland. Um, these seem really cool. I would, I would love a mask. I'd love to buy one. But I know, but the bad news is they are not for sale. So that means if you do see someone walking around with a Catholic uniform face mask, they are probably a medical worker. So you should thank them for their service. At a socially safe distance. Correct. And what's our next story, Zach? So for this last segment, we thought we'd try and introduce a recurring feature where we talk about uh, different vulnerable populations and how 
they are faring under the coronavirus. Um, just because their stories may not be told as often, and so we feel sort of compelled in our Catholic justice tradition to look at those stories. And so this week, we're looking at immigrants to the United States. Right. And so late Monday night, President Trump announced via tweet that he would be signing an executive order suspending immigration into the United States uh, for the foreseeable future as a way to clamp down on the coronavirus pandemic. The specifics of the policy are unclear. Uh, an administration official who spoke with the Wall Street Journal seemed to imply that it really wouldn't change much. Right. So even without this executive order that's supposedly coming, the Trump administration has already ceased nearly every form of legal immigration. Most visa processing has been stopped. Um, almost no one can apply for visas. And um, interview and citizenship ceremonies have been postponed. And uh, refugee programs have all been halted. And so to me, you know, sort of announcing this via tweet, it seems like the president is sort of taking advantage of the current pandemic and the fear around that and sort of directing that fear at immigrant populations and sort of pushing some policies that have sort of clearly been desired for a long time uh, to limit really all forms of asylum seeking and legal immigration. Yeah. And one Catholic group that's long been on the forefront of fighting for immigration justice in the United States is um, Clinic, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Uh, and Jill Marie Bussey from there said that this move is really a distraction for Donald Trump. He, she said that, quote, the pandemic and its economic fallout, like other societal problems in this country, should not be blamed on immigrants. Um, and, you know, the, the fact of the matter is we've passed the uh, part of this pandemic where we can, you know, try to keep it out of the country. It is here and it is spreading organically. Um, right. And we are, we may be trying to stop immigration in, but we have not stopped deporting people out of the country. And so uh, we're spreading the virus that way to other parts of the world. Uh, NPR has reported that 70 people deported from the United States to Guatemala, um, which previously had been largely unaffected by the coronavirus, have tested positive for the virus. So we are sending people from the United States who are infected to, uh, to parts of the world um, where they are, you know, not prepared to provide proper medical care for the, for these people. Right. And so we don't want to just sort of present a lot of problems. We, we also want to like be very clear about what, what are some things that everyday Catholics can do to help this situation. Yeah, and the church has long been on the front lines helping immigrants. So there are a lot of Catholic charities that uh, I I would say are worthy of our support. Um, there are places like Hope Border Institute, the Kino Border Initiative, Catholic Charities Clinic, which we mentioned earlier. All of them continue to do really important work um, supporting immigrants, uh, especially now when they are very vulnerable. Uh, if you know. In a detention center at the border, you you can't socially distance. One thing that you can do as a Catholic uh, sitting at home is call your uh, diocesan justice and peace office and ask, uh, one, what they're already doing to help immigrants in your community. And also, if they're working with uh, local ICE and Border Patrol offices to ensure that they're complying with an ICE directive that says they will not conduct enforcement actions and arrests at places where people are seeking medical care and testing, because it's really important that people aren't worried about their immigration status when they're looking for health care if we're going to limit the spread of this virus. 
So we are far from the end of this crisis. So if there's another vulnerable population that you're you're serving or that you want to learn ro- more about, let us know. Uh, we are always happy to hear from our listeners on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Joining us from Baltimore is Jennifer Overton. She's the Regional Director for West Africa for Catholic Relief Services. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jennifer. Thanks, Ashley. Nice to be with you. Thanks for coming on. Um, So your your work for Catholic Relief Services uh, centers uh, in West Africa. So maybe you could just start with kind of like the basics for our listeners, um, what, what countries that involves and kind of what the socioeconomic situation is there before the coronavirus pandemic? Sure. Um, Well, Sierras has been working in West Africa and supporting the people and and our our partners there on the ground in the Catholic Church and the government for more than 50 years, between 50 and 60 years, really since the time of independence, since those countries got their independence from the different colonial rulers uh, in France and, and other places. Um, it's primarily French speaking and it extends from the area that we call the Sahel part of West Africa, where you have the countries of Mali and Niger and Burkina Faso and down to Senegal. It also includes those countries along the coast. So that would be along the Atlantic ocean. So we have countries like Guinea and Ghana, Ivory Coast, um, Liberia, which uh, some Americans might know uh, a little bit more, a little bit more familiar with, and Sierra Leone. And what are some of Catholic Relief Services' primary initiatives in the region? So, the vast majority of our work centers, um, I'm coincidentally because we're talking about the coronavirus, on on healthcare prevention, so health and preventing diseases, so vaccines, malaria, um, also um, food security. So making sure that people have enough to eat and good nutrition. We also have programs that focus on agriculture. And then our third area um, is really around emergency response. So CRS was created back after World War II. And I would say 40% of our work around the world focuses on emergency response. So whenever there is an emergency, if it's drought, if it's something like Ebola or the coronavirus, um, you know, CRS really feels like it's, it's our responsibility um, and we're, we're called to, to respond um, and, and assist people in, in those times of crisis. So what, what is the situation in West Africa in terms of uh, COVID-19 right now? I know things are changing quickly. So this is, we're recording on April 21st. Um, but uh, are there a lot of cases? Is the healthcare um, infrastructure able to deal with the outbreak at this point? Today, um, we have, I would say, relatively small numbers. For example, in Ghana, there are just over a thousand cases in a country of 30 million people. So just to put it into context, and also another country in the region, Senegal, a country of 16.9 million people. Today, they have 412 cases and five deaths, two of which were foreigners. And um, Are you surprised by how low those numbers are? Or is that just kind of how this 
disease is spreading, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Well, like you said, uh, I think we still don't know. So on one hand, we're pleasantly surprised that it seems to be still this low and the country seems to be able to manage. But other people are saying that Africa is about four to six weeks behind Europe. Um, and so, you know, if we were to have this conversation at the end of May, I don't know what we're going to be dealing with. I would say that while these numbers sound really positive, and some countries are doing a very good job, like Senegal and Ghana, not just has these number of cases, but the numbers of the recovered are also quite positive. But um, I would say on the downside, you know, these are very fragile health systems. There aren't enough doctors, there aren't enough nurses, there aren't enough health clinics. People tend to, once you get outside the city, the capital city, people do tend to live quite far from uh, any kind of um, health clinic or place where they can get health services. And and the, the quality of care outside of the capital city tends to be fragmented, limited, um, very, very fragile. I would say these are still very, very weak health systems, especially, I would say, when you get into places like Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea, um, those countries that did go through the Ebola crisis. And I would be quite worried if the numbers um, started to dramatically increase. And what's the mood on the ground? Are people worried about that? Are they watching what's happening in Europe and America and wondering when is this going to come for us? Or is, or maybe are they thinking it's not going to? I think people are definitely, they're definitely watching. I mean, a lot of these countries, um, you know, they, they depend on a lot of tourism, especially places like Ghana and Senegal, but, but the other countries as well. And, you know, people um, have a lot of, of family and, and, and friends in Europe. So I would say Europe more than the U.S., they're definitely watching. Um, what's happened. And there's a very close relationship between like France and the the French speaking, you know, the ex-French colonies, the Senegal, Mali, Niger, Burkina. So they, they're watching like French television and, and the and the news in Europe very closely. So I think they are kind of wondering when is this gonna gonna hit us. And in in that regard, the countries in Africa took very swift measures, I would say early on to close schools, to close their airports, and to close their borders, because I think they realize we can't handle those kinds of numbers. They're very well aware of the fragility of their um, healthcare system, and they know they can't handle that. And you, you've mentioned uh, the Ebola crisis that, that hit the region. Is that also the memory and experience from that informing what they're doing now? And do you think, I don't know, it seems like they're, they're are acting more quickly than some health officials and politicians in the U.S. did. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think we, we have anything to learn there. <laughs> I, I, I think so. Uh, again, po- all these like po- dichotomy, like positive and negative. But on the positive mm-hmm. side, as early as late February, countries like Liberia, um, I, I was in Senegal at the end of February. They already pulled out all that stuff from Ebola, all the infrastructure, so to speak. And the organization, they brought back together the old Ebola organizing committees, you know, the disaster management committee at the, at the, at the national level that was they just like brought everybody back. That was there what they used from Ebola. Um, they had hand washing stations during the time of Ebola, not just when you arrived at the airport, but before you entered any major, whether it was a government building or a, a, a school or an office building or a restaurant. I mean, practically everywhere you went. You had these um, hand washing stations, which was, you know, a little bit of bleach and, and a lot of water. Plus, you know, there was also soap if you didn't want to use that. But you had to wash your hands before you 
uh, went into whatever the building was. They just brought all of that back out at the end of February when they saw this um, uh, coronavirus sort of, you know, approaching. Apart from some of the practical uh, measures that West Africa has been taking, um, are there other lessons that uh, people or officials in the U.S. could could learn from West Africa's, West Africa's experience with the Ebola crisis and how they've responded now to the coronavirus pandemic. I wonder, like, how is this affecting, like, the soul of, like, how does this, coming back from something like this or even getting through um, th- through it, like, h- how does that affect the soul of a country or a population? So in terms of how people, how Ebola affected people, I mean, it just, it, it took, it was such a, took a, such a devastating toll on the three nations. They lost so many people. Um, I think it's something that, you know, people still talk about. It's, it, it affected every, every corner of society in such dramatic ways. I mean, people, everyone lost somebody they knew. It just crippled the nation, their economy. It took so long for everyone to come back. Children missed almost two years of school. I mean, if you can imagine, and then people were so scared to even come back once things opened. Um, so that, People were really, really scared, even once people said it's okay now to kind of come out um, and out of the quarantine and, and back into the field and back to school and back to work. People were really, really scared. Jennifer, I wonder if we could pivot a little bit towards the role of the the church in West Africa. How is it, I guess, viewed in like a, in terms of like responding to public crises like this? What role does it typically play? People, I think they associate the Catholic Church with um, with support, uh, with you know, with, with uh, kindness and assistance and, and charity. I was talking to someone earlier today about how much respect there is for two things, particularly education, so Catholic schools and healthcare, Catholic hospitals and and health clinics throughout Africa. And you'll find like even some of the, the leaders of these countries, um, ministers and presidents, whether they're Christian or they're Muslim, they went to Catholic school. So there's a great respect for those social services um, that come out of the church. So it, it could be linked to that. But I think just the church is seen as doing the right thing, uh, really on the side of the poor and the most vulnerable, and also not taking sides, like being objective. Um, always fighting for peace, stability, um, f- and, and for the poor and, and most marginalized. So uh, at times like this, when whether you have um, violent conflict, upcoming elections, and there could be a lot of rioting and demonstrations, you will have the church come out and call for calm. In, in this current um, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, how have the bishops and other church leaders, sisters, um, hospital administrators, uh, you know, used that moral authority to kind of like get out the message and help people stay safe? Yeah, because I feel like here in the U.S., that most of their like sort of church leaders' roles have been at least public facing about administrative decisions about when to suspend masses, how to keep parishes mm-hmm. afloat. Um, and I'm wondering how that's different in West Africa. Yeah, I think it's different because those kinds of administrative things tend to be, you've got the government coming out and saying, okay, no prayers at mosque, no mass on Sunday at church. You know, they'll just like say that from, from the national government side. But what, what you have church leaders, just like they did during Ebola, they're out there passing like health messages, like wash your hands, social distance, 
um, and caring messages as well, um, caring for each other. Like I said, I mean earlier, you know, the church is so listened to. Um, we, it's it's really um, it's quite a it's quite an opportunity, you know, to take advantage of that. Um, and and we are right now actually discussing in Guinea, for example. Um, taking a little bit of funding to try to amplify the voice of the archbishop and the other bishops and, and the, and the, the head imam, um, cause they often work hand in hand. Um, they'll do a lot of joint messages together and people, people will listen to them before they'll even listen to the president. It's quite remarkable. Now I'm wondering if you might just talk a little bit about your own, you've worked in Africa for over 25 years now. Is that correct? That's correct. And if you could just say a little bit about what what you love about this region and sort of devoting your own vocation to it and why you did that. I think I was, you know, I was raised um, with a strong sense of social justice. And um, I think, you know, back to my maternal grandfather really instilled that in me and how people um, all over the world, um, because of their race, or it could be their religion or social class, are, are, are treated differently and, and not treated um, fairly. And so I guess I was instilled with that um, strong feeling of fairness. Um, and so I think that kind of infuriates me when I see that people are, not, are, not, uh, are treated differently because of, of, of one of those factors. Um, started with CRS in 1993 and I've been with CRS ever since. So, um, that's sort of a little bit how I got into this and, and what motivates me. I tell people this a lot, um, that I think CRS is different than a lot of the other organizations that do humanitarian work, um, which might sound, maybe that sounds kind of pompous or arrogant, but, um, I think it, it does come back to the fact that it's a, a faith a driven organization and it, it derives its values and its motivation through the Catholic church. But many of, uh, of CRS's employees who are not Catholic, I mean, the majority of our staff in West Africa, for example, are, you know, practice Islam. Um, so, you know, as Muslims, um, they find a lot of um, solidarity in those same values, you know, wanting to help people respect uh, common good, um, subsidiarity, stewardship, just, you know, doing the right thing. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us and for all of the work that you're doing. Um, we have one final question for you. Uh, we ask all of our guests this. Uh, mm-hmm. If you could canonize someone, living or dead, uh, Catholic or not, fictional or non-fictional, uh, who would it be and why? Yeah, I think it would be uh, my... Um, my grandfather, he's the one that really opened my eyes to a lot of the injustice in the world, um, particularly racial injustice in the, in the United States. So as a young, as a young person, um, you know, seeing that firsthand through his eyes and how that was the, the most um, unjust uh, thing and, and how it was so important to, to continue to fight against that. And, uh, and that's what's inspired me to do, um, the work that I do every day. And, and what was his name? His name was Raymond Green. Raymond Green. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. And where can people find out more about um, the work that you're doing with CRS? Um, you can go to CRS.org and you can uh, see the work that we're doing um, to respond to COVID-19 uh, across the globe. All right. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Zach. Have a good afternoon. Me All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a huge thank you to our new Patreon supporters, Christine Welch, Rob Palmer, Jeff Johnson, Alex Vaughn, and Jessica Hensler. Uh, think- That's five. Count I know. Five. What a great week. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. We can't do this work without your support. Um, if anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Media. Yeah, thank you to all the Patreon supporters and also anyone who gave last week on America Media's anniversary giving day. There was such an overwhelming amount of support and we were really moved as a as a staff to to feel that and again we we can't do it without you and we really appreciate your support financial or your prayers and thank you again uh for making last Friday such a memorable anniversary. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. Uh, I'll go first because I have a desolation. Um, So last week, like many people across the United States, I received my um, coronavirus uh, stimulus check. So, you know, the $1,200 was deposited to my bank account. Um, which was exciting. And I was talking with my friend Ilona and her first question was like, oh, so are you going to donate it? Um, and my like immediate reaction was just like, uh, no. <laughs> um, and then I, you know, tried to like rationalize why I wouldn't be donating it. Like, you know, I live in New York and it's expensive and I work for a nonprofit. And, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm in a much better financial situation than, than a lot of people in this country, especially right now. And so I was really kind of like disgusted by my own like reaction to just like grasp to this money and to only think about my own security and not the good I could do uh, in the world. So, but the desolation um, is more is more listening to the voice that that tells me when I look at that reaction that like oh you're you're just not a good Christian. End of story. Like if you were a good Christian, you wouldn't even have to think about um, about what you were going to do with this money. You would just give it away. And I was talking, I was talking with uh, Eric, Father Sundrup, about this, and he was like, you know, yeah, that's the the desolation. Um, and what you're not hearing is that God could could work in this situation. You could you could bring this to prayer and ask those hard questions about like, you know, how much is enough, and what do I need to be secure, and what, how much do I feel comfortable giving? Um, and so I kind of shut God out of that process pretty early on by just um sticking with my gut feeling and then like judging myself uh, to be inadequate based on that that initial reaction um so i'm not gonna like <laughs> put a nice bow on this and be like i prayed about it and gave it all away but i am now <laughs> in the discernment process of how how i think i should um best spend this money 
No, that's really hard. And it's here, you know, hearing you talk about listening to the evil spirit about, you know, it's, it's both more, it's like more convenient and more destructive to just like, accept, like listen to the, you're not a good Christian part of that. Yeah. And it's so relatable. Um, but it doesn't make it any, any easier. So, yeah. so good luck in your prayer. <laughs> Thank you. I'll let you know where it goes. I'll let you know if I decide to give you the money. <laughs> hey, I'm, you know, cross my fingers. <laughs> what do you have, Zach? Uh, this week I've got a consolation. Uh, it's related to the, uh, 7 PM New York city wide. Thank you for healthcare workers. I think they're doing it in other parts of the country too, but yeah, no, we got it in DC. Too. Um, I, I'm, I know that you've probably seen some listeners have probably seen some of the like viral social media posts where people are sort of hanging out their windows, um, in this like highly dense, uh, area. And, I have to admit that's normally the, this is normally the type of thing that I have a tendency to view cynically unless it's sort of done really, really well. Um, but I have to admit in the, in the past week, I've found myself so moved just by opening up my window and seeing people banging pots and pans. And it is this like eruption of noise and New York city is normally a very loud place and it's gotten very quiet recently and every night at seven o'clock hearing the city just erupt in gratitude i would a couple times have been legitimately moved to tears and if sort of this outpouring of gratitude collective outpouring of gratitude isn't a manifestation of god's grace then i then i don't know what is and so that has been my consolation this week is being caught off guard uh in the best way by that in the midst of everything that's going on yeah that's so beautiful. We don't we don't have quite the concentration out here in the suburbs. So um, I would just want to add my gratitude to all the healthcare workers in New York and around the world. Yeah, thank you to all essential workers, everyone who's you know keeping this place going. Um, we're praying for you, and, and we're so grateful for you. Thank you, uh, Ashley. You want to get us out of here? Will do. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McInnes with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.